Our software supply chains are as brittle and filled with weaknesses similar to a physical supply chain. So when you think about like every step of the path from when a developer starts writing software all the way to where it's pushed to production or where you end user is using it, there's different attack vectors across the entire path. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about securing the software supply chain. In late 2020, the world learned about a devastating attack on a network management tool developed by the Texas-based company SolarWinds. SolarWinds' software, called Orion, was used by thousands of corporate customers to reliably look into their own networks and manage IT services. Orion was a standard, well-kept piece of software, and like any standard, well-kept piece of software, it was supported by regular security updates. You know the sort. You've likely seen a dialog box that reads like this. This release includes bug fixes, increased stability, and performance improvements. In nearly every single example in computing history, nearly every, mind you, running these updates is the safe, responsible thing to do. I mean, how many times have you heard me say, have you heard our guests say on this very show, update your software? These are nearly every single time trustworthy and safe. But that wasn't the case here. By March of 2020, attackers had breached the Orion system and managed to swap malicious code into a legitimately produced security update from SolarWinds. That malicious code provided attackers with a backdoor into every Orion customer who both downloaded and deployed the update and who had their servers connected online. Though the initial number of customers who downloaded that update was about 8 15,000 companies. The number of customers infected with the attacker's malware was far lower, somewhere around 100 companies and about a dozen government agencies. This method of attack is one that attacks the software supply chain. It's a type of attack that isn't focused on a single company like Microsoft or Intel or Cisco, which were all affected in the SolarWinds attack, by the way but it is instead a type of attack that is focused on a software tool that is used by hundreds upon thousands of corporate customers. Imagine a car burglar who doesn't bother with casing individual cars in the street at night, but who instead manages to compromise the security protocol for the electronic car door locks in a rich neighborhood, right? The burglar here is attacking something that cars rely on to function properly. These attacks are extraordinarily difficult to prevent and to catch because modern businesses rely on dozens of software tools which themselves incorporate countless pieces of code that are often developed by good faith volunteers. For a single company to understand not only every single piece of software it uses, but also every library, every repository, every scrap of GitHub code taken and plugged into a software build, it's like trying to follow the path of every piece of metal in your iPhone. What company provided that metal? What country sourced it? What plant refined it? What mine produced it? And difficult though the work may be, 
there's more than enough reason to take it seriously. Since the attack on SolarWinds more than one year ago, we've witnessed other supply chain attacks disrupt hundreds of businesses around the world. In 2021, cybercriminals pulled off a similar trick when they sent a malicious update to companies that use the remote monitoring and management tool called Kaseya VSA. Instead of installing a security update, customers unwittingly activated a ransomware attack on their own networks, which also cascaded down into their clients' machines. Today, to help us understand the software supply chain and how we can secure it, we're speaking with Kim Lewandowski, founder and head of product at ChainGuard. Kim, welcome to the show. Hey, David. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, absolutely, Kim. We're excited to have you here. So let's just jump right into it. I had a long intro there talking a lot about all of these supply chain issues. And one of the things that I wanted to dive into immediately is that at least from my perspective, and I haven't been following these attacks very long, so I'll be upfront there, but from my perspective, it seems like there are more supply chain attacks than I had seen previously, right? We had the one with SolarWinds, there was one on Kaseya VSA, uh, something similar with Microsoft Exchange Server. And so my question here is, are these attacks actually increasing in frequency? And if so, do we know why? million dollar question. So yes, I think they are increasing in, in frequency because that's what the data is showing us. Not only are they increasing in frequency, but I think maybe the damage that they're doing is really bringing them to the spotlight as of the last couple of years. The data that we've seen in some reports is there's been a 650% increase in the number of attacks in the last couple of years. And you mentioned the solar winds attack. And I think the estimates from that were around $100 billion in damages. Like, of course, these things are hard to, to calculate, but just seeing that number as a first estimate is kind of mind-blowing at how impactful some of these supply chains attacks are as of late. That's a catastrophic number, by the way, like $100 billion. I have trouble imagining it because I cannot imagine it. That number, right? Is that related as to why it's increasing? Like, are these increasing in frequency and damage because they're more lucrative? Uh, help me understand what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons is, is they are more lucrative. Like your example with the, the car uh, situation, if, if attackers can find a better way to sort of get in and have a, a widespread impact of the attack that they're carrying out, then it's more lucrative for them to carry it out. So I think, you know, some of the other reasons I've heard that, that explain why we're seeing such a big uptick in attack is the attack surfaces are really increasing. So you talked a little bit about like how complex these supply chains are, and they really are. And, and it's funny because a lot of people think physical supply chains, but of course we, we're, we're talking about software supply chains, but if you, you can kind of compare the two. So our software supply chains are as brittle and filled with weaknesses similar to a physical supply chain. So when you think about like every step of the path from when a developer starts writing software all the way to where it's pushed to production or where you end user is using it, there's different attack vectors across that entire path. And companies relying more on open source software and just more technology, more vendors in general, just again, increases all of that attack surfaces. We're seeing a big migration to the cloud too. And I think this is increasing sort of the, the dependency on open source software and different technologies out there. 
And then I think just software supply chain security mitigations and just security in general just hasn't kept up with the pace of these attacks coming down. And you see it all the time. Developers and in large organizations, like security is not always top of mind for them. Like what's top of mind for them is getting their products and features out the door to grow revenue. And so as a developer, like, why would I want to waste extra time thinking about security when, when I've got my managers kind of breathing down my neck to get, to get this new feature out the door? So, yeah, I think it's just a, it's a difficult situation, a very complex problem. Uh, but I think we're making some good progress in trying to help this whole situation out. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's complex there because there's a couple of pillars that you already named. One, you know, at the, at the very start is it may be more lucrative. Two, right, it's the software we're building is more complex and, you know, there's a greater reliance on open source code. And, and it seems there's also, right, security is not top of mind. One thing I'm curious about here is, is that not the way it was before? Like, I'm particularly interested in, right, this reliance on open source code. When did that change? Like, when did we become more reliant on that and why? Yeah, so I think, like, the benefits that open source code bring to everyone here are just countless. Like, companies can innovate faster, they can move faster, they can ship features faster. So I I did see a stat lately that was, like, 77% of organizations are even more reliant on open source code than they were 12 months ago. And I think, again, this goes back to just them wanting to innovate. Like we're in a technology world now. And if you're not a technology company, chances are you're, you're going to have a hard time keeping up with the competitors. I think GitHub has even seen 40% increase of open source project creation per day. And one of the big benefits of open source, again, is like code reuse. And so if you're, if you're a developer trying to, I don't know, edit a video or edit images. Instead of writing software from scratch that does that for you, it's much easier to go find an open source library or someone that's already solved that problem once. And then you can rely on that code in your own systems and perhaps maybe even add some features that you need specifically that were missing. And so this great adoption of open source is hugely beneficial, but does come with its risks. So when we talk more about the supply chain and your, again, your example about bringing in the metal into the phone, these projects are highly dependent on each other and have dependency chains that are miles deep in every single kind of one of those open source dependencies or projects you, you bring into your system, you're sort of putting trust in all the developers behind that software package. You're putting trust into how that package was built. You're putting some trust into if they're patching or updating their vulnerabilities. Um, You're putting trust in all the dependencies like it's using. So it's sort of this massive complex system now when you start to bring in these different software packages. We will get into, like you said, almost this like Byzantine structure and like this sort of like branching off this waterfall of like, you have to trust all of these independent individual developers and you have to trust that they're securing their vulnerabilities and that, you know, if they've relied on someone else's code, that that piece is also being secured and updated. But I wanted to go back a little bit and you mentioned a couple of numbers here, something like, you know, at GitHub, you know, 
uh, noticing a 40% increase in the creation of open source projects, it seems per day, which um, I may have heard that incorrectly, um, but that's still a insane statistic. Um, and then, you know, 77% of companies uh, more reliant than they were 12 months ago. I wanted to try and broaden out, and it's a big question here, but I, I wanted to see, can you help me understand the state of like modern software development in terms of how common is it to rely on and use open source tools and libraries? And I understand it's a difficult question because like, is there even a way to quantify how much we're relying on open source code? But any way we can understand this, are there percentages? You know, are there numbers? Um, help me understand this. Sure. Yeah. So just on the GitHub thing first, yeah, I think that was a 40% year over year growth and mainly triggered, I think, from the pandemic. So the pandemic was a huge uh, moment in time too, where lots of uh, technology companies were having to shift their businesses around remote and support work, remote work environments. So I think we saw a big uptick in open source adoption just from the pandemic perspective. Yeah. And then, yeah, jumping back, I haven't done any of the research myself, but of course, I've seen some of these numbers. I think it was Sonatype's report that said like modern applications now are made up of 90% open source code. So, I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're not getting away. <laughs> we're not getting away from it. <laughs> and again, just to how complex these are. And one of our, I, I do a lot of work in the Open Source Security Foundation, which is a neutral foundation under the Linux Foundation that's trying to tackle software supply chain uh, issues and, and open source security. And I was in a, a meeting, I think last week, and saw uh, one of our community members did a analysis on the Kubernetes project itself. So Kubernetes is a massive open source project now that's gained tons of adoption across the industry and all major cloud providers now uh, have like a managed Kubernetes offering. So he did some analysis just on that project alone, which again is a massive project, but and started pulling out like all the dependencies and all the things that it relies on. And I'm telling you, this graph that he produced is massive. I couldn't even get it to render like on my <laughs> machine. And it just go, I mean, it, it was crazy. And we were joking around saying we could turn this into an art, a work of art and, <laughs> and hang in our living rooms or something. But just to like, just to go to show, I mean, software supply chain, it doesn't sound like it's that daunting of a problem or anything. It feels really tractable. But when you actually start digging in and you, and you see the complexity uh, in these systems, it's just sort of mind blowing. And so, yeah, with that stat that 90% of all modern applications are made up of open source code, like that was just the Kubernetes project alone, which many companies rely on now. <laughs> to zoom out and you think of all the applications that they're building even on top. That image that I can only imagine, right? And I'm going to look it up and see if it's been published anywhere uh, or posted because <laughs> that's great. I'm already so stuck on it because... I can envision, right, again, just this branching structure that just doesn't end, this sort of tree of life almost. <laughs> and that work has to be done by a person or by a group of people, and that's just one platform. And so I wanted to just kind of hone in on that. That seems like part of the problem, right? Like that seems like part of the difficulty, the obstacle in securing the software supply chain is, first of all, you have to do this work for everything. And I guess like, let's just jump into it. How do you do that? How does a company even, like, it seems impossible. <laughs> it does. It really does. Uh, and I think things like the solar winds attack definitely shined a new light on the entire space where 
companies are um, taking this more seriously and looking at ways to actually lift and improve kind of the entire standards around this space. You and I understand the problem pretty well, but the first step again, I think is, is just driving more awareness. Like I mentioned the Kubernetes, uh, the Kubernetes project, like I bet most people aren't aware of, of all the weaknesses and the threats along the supply chain. And so I do, I think that awareness is, is sort of step number one. Once we get more people thinking about the problem, then we can come together and start building up more solutions. Any big solution in this space is going to have to really leverage sort of automation and getting out of developers' ways. Because at the end of the day, like developers are the ones that need to be developing code more securely and have more awareness about different packages that they're bringing into their own projects and how their projects are being built. But if we try to kind of bring a hammer down and telling developers that they have to do things like a certain way, or they can only use certain tools or anything like that, then we're not going to make any progress because it's just not going to happen. And so I do think like one of the keys is, is building out tooling and, and best practices that really um, drive like automation and, and make this so developers don't even sort of have to think about doing the right thing. They're just doing it by default. I think it's interesting that you brought up this different method of like hammering down right on developers and saying like well you can only use these tools like these propositions you know or proposals that you know you can only do this you can only do this this way i didn't even know that that was a thought you know <laughs> like in preparing for this episode i didn't think like oh yeah like i wonder if one of the things we would do is like really turn the screws on developers <laughs> um that feels unfair yeah no it totally does but if you have massive weaknesses and risk, you got to start chipping away at those problems. I think one big place, and again, back to the solar winds thing, like that was the build system that got infiltrated. And that's one thing we see today is just insecure build systems happening everywhere or code not even being built from source. And so that's one step. Like we start hardening these build systems down the, the, or start with the most popular systems that everyone's using and then kind of force the developers to use those systems. Like even that's a hard, like a huge step for a company to kind of take a hammer down uh, in that regard, because they, again, they want developers to be writing code and pushing out new features and products as, as fast as possible. But if we can, what's the saying, have our cake and eat it too. Like if we can provide developers with these hardened kind of software supply chain pipelines or including like hardened build systems and it does everything that they need it to do and doesn't get in their way, then I think we're in a better position of kind of taking down that hammer because it's not something that's going to get in their way or slow them down. It's not so much a restriction or a, a punishment. It seems like it's more like we're trying to harden the systems that are already helpful for you and then you can just keep using them. So like beyond that idea, which is great. Like I hadn't heard that before. That seems really neat. I also was kind of curious to go back a bit here because from my understanding, like those software supply chain issues, they're more frequent today. They're more damaging today. They're not new. And I was told that this old vulnerability, the Heartbleed, was also an example of a software supply chain issue of an open SSL library, I believe. And like I see something like that, that's like 2014, And I remember when it happened, people took it seriously, from what I remember. And I think people have been raising these alarm bells for a while, right? But if the alarm bells have been present, 
has it been that people haven't been listening or has it just been that this work is extraordinarily difficult to do and therefore we still have these problems? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I wasn't working in this space when Heartbleed hit, but it's it's kind of funny and kind of sad at the same time when I when I look back at this and it, it does remind me a lot of the pandemic that's happening now. There were people raising the alarm bells and a lot of people weren't listening and too many resources were sort of needed to prepare effectively for the next pandemic. And and then everyone kind of wasn't top of mind and then another, and then it happened, <laughs> COVID hit and yeah. it was mass panic and terrible times, I think for most everybody in the world. And and I feel like it's it's kind of similar to that, what we're seeing now. So yeah, Heartbleed did happen. I know there's some good efforts that spun out of that. I'm sure there was a lot of a lot of good stuff that spun out of that, but then we still uh, found ourselves in a situation where these supply chain attacks are are one of like the biggest risks to technology companies today. So I think it's a combination of you know folks not listening or not and not feeling like they're going to be impacted uh, or just like have higher priorities. Again, security always is kind of not top of mind for a lot of people. So kind of shove everything kind of under the rug and then we we carried on and now we're seeing big upticks and attacks again. When you started with like, it reminds me of the pandemic. I'm like, oh no. You know, I don't want anything to remind me of the failures we've made, you know, that we're living through. Um, And it's like, okay, well, at least I concretely understand though what that is. It's something you've gone back to a couple of times that you've repeatedly said here is that developers are being tasked to right, 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 you know, build code, build code, build code. And that kind of goes hand in hand with security not being top of mind. When I hear things like this, I always am curious, was that not the way it was before? Um, Was there some ideal time when we did place security top of mind? Or what's the difference now? Is it just volumetrically, there's more of us, you know, how has that changed? Yeah, I I mean, that's a great question. I don't know if I have the right answer here, but I I started out as a developer, I guess, 10, 15, 15 years ago. And similar thing, I I, I wasn't thinking about security. I was just pulling in packages from off the internet to, to do what I needed to do. I think traditionally, though, there was more emphasis on like more um, firewall protection and physical security and less dependencies on outside code, open source code, third party vendor code. And so I think maybe that was part of it, uh, that we were a little bit better protected because systems weren't just as complex. But I'm, I'm not actually sure if that's totally accurate, too, because even Linux operating itself is a huge open source project that has weaknesses along it as well. So I I don't know. I'd be curious about what others, what other experts in this space think on, on that question. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, I know it is a problem. I've seen it happen, but I'm not old enough to know if it wasn't a problem. <laughs> I wanted to move back to, you know, we were talking a little bit about how to start fixing this. And it seems like there are probably dozens of ways, but I wanted to open up the question again. And again, all the ideas, you know, that you have are absolutely welcome here. I'm I'm curious from like big structural propositions, right, to individual responsibilities. I'm curious from ideas of like, do we create a third party 
review board, you know? And is it like multiple ones? Like I'm reminded of the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure, right? Which are the folks who found the vulnerability in Kaseya VSA. And it's just a group of volunteers, right? And they go around and they kind of poke and prod at software. And they're like, okay, there are these problems. They get the job done, right? Which is great. We want that. But at the same time, I'm also like, gosh, I wish it wasn't volunteer work. I wish we had people like (laughs) paid to do this. And so again, zooming out as big as we can get and as small as we can get, we know the problem. How do we fix it? How do we secure our software supply chain? Yeah. (laughs) Another million dollar question. Uh, (laughs) Again, it's got to start with some awareness and education and training. If people aren't even aware that there's a problem, again, I know you and I are aware of the problem, but if people still aren't aware that this is an issue or risk to their business, then we need to start there. And then going back to what I was saying before, I really think the solution sort of lies in the tooling and the best practices and making that so easy that no one has an excuse not to adopt it in their own systems. Uh, I mentioned the Open Source Security Foundation, and that is a lot of companies coming together under one umbrella to really put a dent and make impact uh, on this whole space. There are some foundational projects that we are starting with. One of them that uh, was created while, while I was working at Google and Google and Red Hat and a bunch of other companies are all invested now in this open source project called SigStore. And what SigStore is doing is making code signing super easy uh, for developers. And what that means is that developers or systems or build systems can cryptographically sign that code which then means people on the other end that are consuming that software can verify the signature and make trust-based decisions based on like which build system signed the software package or which developer signed this, this commit into the software package. And so I do think like one of the big nuts like we have to crack as an industry is being able to trust and have available the data along these software supply chains to start making decisions based on that. It's something that we haven't really been tracking before. It's just like, we call it like the metadata. So all of the kind of ancillary data from when code leaves the developer's keyboard all the way again across that supply chain to it gets into a production system. Like traditionally, no one's ever really looked at that metadata before and have done anything with it. So I'm talking about which developers were involved in writing the code. What build systems were they using? Uh, What dependencies went into that thing? And was it scanned for vulnerabilities? Like all that information (laughs) hasn't, like get back to the developer that's trying to get their job done as fast as possible when they're pulling off a random package off the internet. They're not thinking about those questions. (laughs) They're not thinking about how many developers are writing code for this open source project that I just took a dependency on, or how did they build it? Or was it scanned for vulnerabilities? Or is it using the most updated packages that it depends on? So what that six store project is is starting to do is starting to help actually build in that trust factor. So when you can look back and say, okay, I can now cryptographically verify that this software package was written by these developers or was built by this build system, 
Um, so I think it's a hugely kind of industry shifting project that's out there right now that it's gotten a lot of great adoption and momentum throughout different lang- like uh, software language ecosystems and package managers. And so I'm really excited for, for that to kind of take roots and, and help kind of everyone along in this space. Yeah, there's just so much work to be done. So I mentioned like you, you need to have some of this data and be able to trust the data to then make decisions on it. It's kind of like one of the first steps that I see. But also like having best practices, which is another effort that, that's kind of underway in, in different communities and including the CNCF and the, again, the OpenSSF is like developers need to know what to do. It's not, it's not that they don't think security is important or platform teams don't think you know, security is important either. Like they just need to sort of know like what are the best practices here? How should they be thinking about hardening their build systems? What types of policies should their organization have to follow in terms of bringing in third-party software packages or relying on a third-party vendor? Like they just need some guidance. And and so we're trying to work with the broader industry here and, and really defining like what some of those best practices are and actually showing like how they can be implemented. Uh, so one of the things that we saw from um, the solar winds thing is new regulation being put in place by the U.S. government. There was an executive order that came out, and now we're seeing like new guidelines from NIST around how to how to uh, improve software supply chain security. And so I think those kind of new um, standards and stuff are really helping to push people along in the right direction for for trying to get a better handle on the situation. Everything that we spoke about, one, it sounds exciting. I, I'm very excited about, like you said, this sort of industry shift, particularly in like looking at like what we used to call metadata, but it's extraordinarily important that we could get to a point one day where, you know, I'm imagining like like these nutrition cards, you know, that like <laughs> come alongside any any piece of code and, and a developer on their own can see like, okay, like... This hasn't been supported in the past eight years. It's run by one fellow. We don't know where they are, how devoted they are to it, or, you know, maybe they have gotten a job and they no longer, you know, a full-time job that's like really crushing and they can no longer support this project. And the developer takes the own choice to be like, "Mm, maybe not that one, (laughs) you know, like maybe find a different one and sort of just making those choices and, you know, equipped with understanding the best practices as well for their own company, the policies, like we can start to move forward. I am curious about what we do about the vulnerable software today, right? Like a lot of these things feel like we can fix the environment, we can fix the landscape and moving forward, we can produce more secure things. But I'm wondering about today and I'm reminded again of that Kubernetes map. I'm reminded of that. What's a reasonable, feasible thing for like a company that is worried about the supply chain, about these vulnerabilities? What do they do? Like, because again, I, I don't think that like auditing every piece of software on their own, that doesn't feel feasible. And so I wonder what we do for folks today. Yeah, great question. I think a few things. I think what I was saying before, it does go back to uh, having more automated tooling around this thing. So if, if a company is about to take a dependency on a new piece of software or something and having some automated tooling that goes and, and kind of generates a risk assessment of that 
software package, I think would go a long way. Not saying that the company would have to like totally not use it in their systems, but at least give them awareness of how risky this thing is. Maybe it's only allowed to be deployed in certain environments, or maybe it's sort of locked down in a more sandbox environment, or maybe that you have maybe they have to have an internal developer that's more responsible for it and, and sort of takes on the onus of making sure that it is patched regularly and, and responds to any sort of situations that arise. So I think I think more automated tooling here would go a long way in people understanding some of the risks that they're taking on. Dealing with vulnerabilities today is also kind of a major pain point for a lot of organizations. And I'll just give you one example is I constantly hear companies that can't figure out the signal from the noise. And so there will be uh, just a popular open source package that has had critical vulnerabilities for years. And actually, who decides that that's critical or not? Like the, the maintainers of that project may not agree that it's a critical vulnerability. And so companies just have to like sift through all of this vulnerability noise and figure out what do they actually need to pay attention to? What is the real signal here. And I think that's a massive problem that a lot of folks are up against today. I think there's a lot of work being done here to make the whole kind of vulnerability uh, situation a little bit easier to manage and to, again, provide better tooling for dealing and handling with vulnerabilities. I think you know some of the stuff that I'm working on at, at ChainGuard are starting with a more hardened kind of base image or container image package that we we're managing <laughs> vulnerabilities on behalf of customers. And so we're kind of like this, uh, I, I hate the expression, but like throat to choke as people would say. So it is one approach that companies can take. It's kind of like offload this problem <laughs> to, to someone else that can manage the vulnerability issue and try to eliminate the noise and make sure that you are only need to be aware of the critical ones and, and, and react accordingly. I wanted to wrap up here with something, uh, again, I only ask broad questions. Um, so <laughs> something we've talked a lot about is, right, awareness and education, um, making people aware of the problem, understanding that it is a problem. And one of the questions I had earlier, you know, is like, you know, what will happen if we don't take this seriously? And I kind of wanted to pivot that and ask something of the same spirit, but a little differently here, which is like, let's say I, like, I don't know any of this. I have no clue about these problems. I have no clue about what the consequences of these problems would be. Can you help me understand? Can you provide the best argument for realizing, for recognizing that this is a problem and for doing something different? like in my own company. And so I guess I'm asking here like, okay, I don't know about this. What is the best argument? What happens if I don't take this seriously? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think depending on what sort of industry or what sort of company that you work at, uh, I think a big piece is just sensitive data. And so if you're dealing with any sensitive data, like attackers could get that and leak it and to, you know, do whatever they want with it. I think we see a lot of attackers just getting into your machines to mine crypto. And so if you have weaknesses in your in your stack and someone's able to get in there and and spin up a bunch of machines, and then you're probably on the other end of that responsible for paying the bill. 
I think the one thing that kind of scares me the most are our really critical systems, like our our water supplies, our energy, uh, anything like that. And the more I sort of learn about some of these systems and organizations, the, the more it kind of keeps me up at night that traditionally a lot of these these organizations don't have the expertise or don't have the means to you know, put a debt in this in this problem for themselves. And I think that's where that's where I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> and so if you if you work at one of those places and in healthcare and energy and, and water and, and don't feel like your organization is taking these things seriously, I mean, definitely ring some alarms internally and see what you can do. I know we've seen attacks as of recently against hospitals or ransom attacks and things where real lives are sort of being lost. I hope that 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 people in those places and, and that can make a difference there are, are taking this seriously and, and trying to trying to make improvements. Yeah, I I am reminded of an interview that we did um, last year where we spoke to someone who was in critical infrastructure security mm-hmm. and some positive notes from this. I went into the interview thinking we're done for. It's doom and gloom. <laughs> we have like rickety systems built on top of broken systems built on top of something that no one ever knows was made before, you know, and we're like a breath away from disaster. And I learned through that interview that the way that critical infrastructure, so like dams and plants, you know, like Mm -hmm. water systems, that because they have always been critical infrastructure, for lack of a better word, that the way they were built up for physical security has actually helped them support themselves through digital security, through cybersecurity. And that's mainly because like those systems rely on multiple people to be watching something that could go wrong at any minute. And having multiple people, it's as simple as like you have more resources and these people are trained to know when something goes wrong. And they've been trained as like, you know, what is something going wrong from a cybersecurity issue, from privileged access that shouldn't be there, you know, from a mm-hmm. from a, an account being used that was that should have been deactivated, you know, last month, last year, and so like I was pleasantly surprised. I had learned of like I learned of a couple of attacks that were prevented because like as simple as like someone was watching the screen and they like they did something about it, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like eh, you know whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was like just a moment of hope there that it you know I'm not saying that like these systems are secure, but I am saying that there's, <laughs> there's people watching, which is a bit of a relief. <laughs> yeah. So I shouldn't have too many nightmares. But yeah, I'll, just, to, I'll yeah. have to catch that episode. <laughs> just have, yeah, this is a lesson for everyone. Have fewer nightmares. <laughs> Kim, and that's our tip for today. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, I wanted to thank you again so much for coming on today's show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me. This was fun. To our listeners at home, if you want to look at that mapped out Kubernetes diagram, you can find it in today's show notes. It is an enormous image, by the way, that requires you to zoom out quite dramatically. Or alternatively, you can scroll all the way down to the bottom where you'll find one corner of the diagram and then you can just kind of follow it from there. 
As always, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at blog.mauerbytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. Thank you, folks. Thank you.